All right, friends. How's everybody doing? You're T minus a few weeks away from the big day. Is the pressure rising? You're like, it's already killed me. I'm already dead. It's over. My name is Thomas. We haven't met yet. It's a joy to be together. I get to be on staff here at the Erie campus and be able to open God's word with you each week to see what God is, is saying. That he has been spoken, he has spoken, that he is speaking today. And we're in this series called Advent. And Advent is the season that we find ourselves in, in the church calendar, where the church intentionally pauses to celebrate the arrival. That's what Advent means, the arrival of our Savior, of the one that God promised to come and rescue us. And as Christians on this side of Christmas, we live between the Advents. We live between the advent of his first coming in the manger, and we long for his advent of the second coming, where he restores all things anew. And in the season of Advent, there's been kind of four historical themes the church has looked at, one being hope. Chris Barnes did a great job last week with hope, didn't he? It was so good to have it, hear about how the people have hoped for God's coming, and then to see it realized in Christ's arrival was so good. And then today we're going to look at love as a second theme of Advent, and then joy and peace. And then we'll be into Christmas Eve. And so today we want to look at the love of God, that we want to look at God's incredible love that he has for us. And so I want you to take a minute, and we're going to pray, and we're going to ask God that he would speak to us as we open up the scriptures and look at what, what is God's love like, and then how do we as his people imitate his love for the world around us? Okay, let's pray. Father, I ask that you would be our teacher. Lord, your word is living and active, and so I ask that it would be living, that it would be alive, that it would be speaking today. Lord, take words that you have said that have been written down and recorded and speak them anew this morning. Lord, teach us what it is to love in a season that we have so much hope to experience love. Help us to know what your love truly is. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the one who came down. We pray that the Holy Spirit would be alive and active, speaking to us, to be our teacher, to bring to remembrance all these things. Father, we pray that you would be glorified in everything that you see and hear done in this room. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, here's the question. You got playoff tickets. Playoff tickets to one of the best football games of the year. And you have some of the best seats right behind the field goal, in the end zone, a few rows up. You buy yourself a nice sign from Walgreens, and you're going to write on it one verse. What verse do you write on your sign? John 3.16. That's right. Here's a picture of you with your sign, John 3.16. Okay. You're a famous race car driver, and you get to put one verse on your bumper to let everybody know what you're about. What verse do you put on your bumper? John 3.16. You put it right there in the corner, John 3.16. Now, it gets a little more complicated. You decide you're going to do some vandalism for Jesus. So you're going to mark up some wall somewhere with a verse. What verse do you vandalize someone's property with? John 3.16. Absolutely. Now here's a serious question. 
you're the greatest quarterback the Denver Broncos have ever had. And you're going to put one verse on your, on your uh, eye black. What verse do you put on? John 3.16. That's right. Now, some of you are like, whoa, whoa, is that Tim Tebow? I mean, he's not the greatest quarterback the Broncos have ever had. And I would agree, I would agree that there's no question who the greatest quarterback is. It's Peyton Manning, obviously, number 18 himself. But you're going to put John 3, 16. You're just going to put it on the car. You're going to put it on a wall. You're going to put it on a sign. Because you want the world to know what this verse says. It's a reference to this verse. Now, in today's culture, many people, and I would say that many in this room, perhaps, don't know what John 3.16 says. Now, we read it earlier, if you caught that. But the world doesn't know what 3.16 means anymore. But we want the world to know what 3.16 says. Because it is the greatest verse to tell the world who our God is and what he thinks about them. This is the verse that tells the world what God is like, what God has done. And an invitation for the world to respond is John 3, 16. Now here's the thing, it speaks about God's love. And the reason we wanna look at God's love is because God is perfect in his love. The Bible says that God is love. He is the essence, the definition, the gold standard of love. It doesn't simply say that God is loving or does lovely things, but it says that God is. You're going to define God. What's God like? Give me a definition of God. He is love. He's love. Now, the reason we need to look at how God loves because he is love is because we're really bad at it. We don't understand love, especially in the English-speaking world. We use this word love for almost everything. So we only have really one word for love, and if you go to the Greek, I mean, it has several words for what kind of love you're talking about. But here in the English, we don't even get love, and it's not even in our language. And so we say things like, man, I love Christmas time, and I love cookies, and I love my wife. And you're like, do you love your wife more than cookies? I'm like, I don't know. Cookies are pretty good. <laughs> Just kidding. She knows I love her. What kind of love? And then how we use love, and, and we ask this question, is are we lovable? And we try to make ourselves lovable so that others would love us. And we try to do things so that people could see someone who is lovely. That if they saw who we are and kind of our messiness, they might not love us. And so we're doing things to put an outside veneer on our lives so that our friends and family might love us. Think about your first date with your spouse. Perhaps you're single today and you're hoping for a first date that will lead to have a spouse. And you think about this first date and the first thing that you think about is, well, I can't do what I normally do. Otherwise, they won't love me. And so if we're going to go out on a date, if I'm going to take her out on a date, if I'm going to take him out on a date, I'm not going to go to the places I normally go. I'm going to go to some fancy place so that she might love me. I mean, if I just take her to my normal stops like Taco Bell, Wendy's, Chick-fil-A, like, she might not love me. And so we're going to go out on a nice date. And, you're, and she's thinking, okay, you know, I, I can't just wear my sweats and my throwback jerseys and my pants. If I just show up, show up with what I, what I normally wear, he might not find me lovable. And so I'm going to put on makeup 
And in the word, it defines what it is. You're trying to make up for what you think is lacking. <laughs> Why? Because if I showed up without my makeup, well, then he might not love me. And guys do the same thing. If I show up with that old car, or unwashed or unclean, well, I need to go do those things so that people will love me. And then the idea that we would woo people is so that they would fall into love with us. But if they fall in love with us, what are we terrified about? Terrified. They fall out of love with us. What if I, what if I stop being lovable? What if my physical appearance what if my financial status, what if my preferences, what if my outlook on life changes? Will they still love me? And then we enter into marriage with this idea and it just confuses marriage of we have to remain lovable. And so we're not always honest with the things that we think and we feel and, and we're terrified. We're always asked this question, am I lovely? Do they love me? That's why we look at God's love. Because God loves in a very different way than we love. And here in John 3, 16 is a clear picture of God's love. And as we enter this season, which is kind of like this happy holiday of love, we want to know what is love? Because we got it all backwards and screwed up and messy. We're not good at this. And so give us a standard, at least a benchmark, of what pure, perfect love looks like. And then we can start asking our questions. In light of that, how does that change how I love other people? Especially in the holiday season. Especially with those who are challenging to love. So if you got your Bible, we're going to John chapter 3, verse 16. We read it. Here it is on the screen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is where John 3.16, and, and the thing about studying your Bible is you want to know where these verses show up because if you know where they show up in context, it's like movie quotes. You can take a movie quote out of context and it can mean a whole bunch of things. But if you take it and put it in context, it really becomes alive. It means so much more. And so John 3.16 starts with a for, a because. Now, whenever you see that in your scriptures, you just need to stop and say, what came before that? You see a for, a so that, a because, a therefore. Just stop because it's probably answering something or it's concluding something of a conversation or a teaching that's happened prior to it. If it just started, God so loved the world, that's where the statement starts. But it starts with a four. So we're going to understand anything about God's love. We first have to understand, what's it in reference to? And so you back up to chapter three, and you find the most interesting interaction with Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. And so John chapter three opens with these words. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a good teacher, and that you've come from God. And he asks this question, this, this Pharisee, a religious leader, who knows his Old Testament scriptures. And he's heard the things that Jesus has been teaching, and he has seen some of the signs that Jesus has been doing, and it has piqued his interest. Could this be? 
the promised Messiah, the promised Christ, the one that God would send to restore Israel, to make all things new. Could this be the one that the world has been hoping for? But Nicodemus doesn't come during the day when all his friends are going to be there. Doesn't come when the community is going to be there and, and he has to show that he's coming to Jesus. No, Nicodemus comes in the middle of the night. He comes at a time when, when no one's going to see Nicodemus show up and ask Jesus some questions. He's rather embarrassed, probably, to be there. And the question he asks for Jesus is this. How does one inherit eternal life? Now, the Jewish way of asking this is, how does one enter the age to come? That God is creating an age in which he restores all things new and restores Israel. There's coming an age when God restores his good and right creation the way that he made it in Eden. There's no more sin. There's no more evil. There's no more injustice. There's no more racism. There's none of that. There is eternal life, the, the fullness of life forever. And Nicodemus is asking, how does one get to enter the age of newness, the eternal life, the fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. How does one enter that? Because we know that we don't belong there. If God's perfect and his world's gonna be perfect, we're not perfect, and so how do we enter eternal life? And Jesus responds in the most peculiar way. He says, you have to be born again. You have to be reborn. And Nicodemus is like, oh, time, wait, time out, time out, time out. I'm an old man. Can I climb back into my mother's womb and be born again? Jesus is like, okay, you missed the whole point. You're a teacher of Israel. You're asking these questions. It's, no, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a new birth that you have as much to do with as your first birth. We're talking about being reborn from above. You have to be born of God, born of spirit, not just of flesh. A rebirth has to happen. And no one can ascend to heaven apart from being reborn. And so that's why God has come down, Jesus Christ, God himself has come down so that the children of God might be reborn. Jesus was born of a virgin in Bethlehem that we might be reborn of heaven. C.S. Lewis put it this way in his famous works, Mere Christianity. He says, the son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. So that women and men who would put their faith in Jesus would be reborn. That's what needs to happen. A rebirth needs to happen. That's the four part of this conversation with Nicodemus. How does one enter the age that we're all longing for that's coming, that's never ending, this eternal life? And Jesus says, you have to be reborn again. And you have to believe in the one that has descended that you would now have this new birth that you might join him in his heavenly dwelling place. So for God, the, the for the conversation about eternal life, how does one enter it? For God so loved. Second piece of this is God himself. God's the initiator. No one has put God in their debt and like God owes it to him to show up. God needs to love him. No, 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 no. It's God self-initiating love. God so loved the world. Now, we translate this idea of so probably much as like so much. If you're talking to someone about John 3, 16, you'll say, God loved the world so much. 
But the so isn't, isn't answering the question of, of volume, but of value. It's not how much did God love, but how did God love? By sending his own son is how God loved, which speaks of its value and its volume, but it's the kind of love that God has for us, that God would send his own son to love us. And so this goes back up, once again, to the previous conversation. And they're gonna talk about the kind of love that God has for the world by drawing on one of the most odd, peculiar scenes in all of the Bible. It's only mentioned once in the New Testament right here. And it goes back to the days of the Exodus, which we were just in. And so you look at John chapter three, starting in verse 13, God's love, how he loves by sending his son is described with this episode from Numbers 21. Verse 13 says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so he goes back to this most peculiar scene in the Exodus. I remember when we were journeying through the book of Exodus, we kept saying, these are signposts, how Jesus fulfills it. Everything about Exodus, about the wilderness is pointing to Jesus. And even this episode where the people of God rebel against God, they break faith with God. And God sends these poisonous snakes into the camp as a judgment, and they get bit by these snakes. It's crazy, right? And then God creates of his own free will a gracious provision of salvation. And he says to Moses, lift up this bronze serpent around a staff, right, his staff, that the people, whoever would look unto the staff, this bronze serpent, would be healed of their terminal disease and they would be saved. Kind of peculiar, isn't it? But Jesus connects that with what he's here to do, that he has come down to be lifted up. And when it speaks about him being lifted up, it's talking about two things, his execution on the cross, that Jesus Christ was lifted up on the cross as a sin sacrifice. He looked like sin. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So he looks like sinful man on the cross because he's bearing our sins. But he's not only lifted up in his execution, but after his death and resurrection, what happened to Jesus? He was exalted. This is exaltation, where he sits at the right hand of God, interceding for us in glory. And so the Son of Man that's lifted up is both in his execution of the cross and his exaltation in glory to his rightful position next to the Father. And all those who would lift their eyes and look upon Jesus like those in the days of Moses looking to God's provisions would be saved. For God so loved. What kind of love? That is sacrificial love. He gave. Not simply that he sent, but he gave. This idea of giving is the idea of gift giving. Sacrificial gift giving. That God's love is marked as sacrificial giving. That's his love. It costs him something to love us. It's not easy to love us. It costs God his very own son to love us. And his very own son is the best. Is the best. He gives the best gift to the most undeserving people like me. For God so loved the world 
the world. Now, if you're Nicodemus hearing this, this is blowing your mind because you're a leader of Israel. And who does God love? Israel. He loves his people, the Jewish people, first and foremost. And here Jesus says, I am the one you've been looking for. And God so loved, not Israel only, not people just like you only, but the world, the world. See, Nicodemus can't imagine that God's love would be that grand, that wide, that it would be able to encompass all the people groups of the world, all the different races and ethnicities, every tribes, every nations, that God's love would be for all the world. Only Christianity has the audacity to say God loves the whole world. Every other religion is saying God loves us. And if you want to be loved, you've got to become one of us. And here God says, I love the world. And I'm going to give my best. It's going to cost me my own son to love him. And were we deserving of love? Oh, man, no. Imagine this. Okay, God gives his best gift to the most undeserving people. Think about the gifts you're going to give at Christmas time. Perhaps who, who's going to get the best gift from you at Christmas? Probably the person that loves you the most right? I'm, I'm probably going to give Kristen, my wife, the best gift. I'll, I'll probably give her my usual four-carat diamond or tennis bracelet from Zales. Maybe something more this year, I don't know. But imagine I took that best gift, and Kristen says, who are you giving that to? Oh, remember that person that scammed us earlier this year and stole all our money and drained our bank accounts? I looked him up, and I'm going to give him this gift. Like, you're crazy. Why would you love them? They hurt us. They stole from us. They robbed us. Why would you not give your best to the person who loves you the most? Because God loves differently than how we love. He takes his best and he gives it to us who have hurt him, walked away from him, don't care about him, don't love him. Paul, writing later in the New Testament, writes to a church in Rome. This is what Paul says about God's love. This is Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely, scarcely die for the, a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When did Jesus come and give us this gift? when we didn't deserve it. At our worst, with no makeup on, God saw us and laid his affection on us and says, I love them. I see all their messiness. I see them undone. I see them with all their foibles, all their warts. And you know what? I love them. And I'm coming for them. I want them to know who I am. See, scarcely someone will die. Perhaps someone will die for a righteous person. Perhaps a husband will die for his wife or his wife for her husband. Maybe. But God demonstrates what love is in this. That while we were sinners, undeserving of receiving any gift at Christmas, he looked at you and said, I want you to have my for God so loved, that's the kind of love God has, for the whole world. Aren't you so glad it says the whole world? 
doesn't say those who are well accomplished, educated, the pretty, the strong, the young. No, the whole world. Which means you can take your name and put it right there in that verse. God so loved April, Jeremy, Sally, that he gave. His only son. And this is that whosoever would believe, this is the looking up at God's provision of salvation for the age to come. That whosoever, anybody, young, old, educated, not educated, accomplished, not accomplished, it does not matter, whosoever believes, that's the looking up at Jesus, would not perish but have eternal life. Now, we've got we to pull apart this believe idea. Because if that's the remedy is Jesus Christ, and we have to believe in the remedy to be cured from our disease, don't you want to know what it means to believe? I, I don't want to convince you that it's easy, easy believism. And so to believe on Jesus is to, to first and foremost believe that he is who he said he was, the Son of God, and that God raised him from the dead. Yes, First and foremost, but even the demons believe that, and they shudder. So what is saving belief in Jesus? Well, I think I get this from just a few verses later in John chapter 3, that to believe on Jesus for salvation is to follow and obey Jesus. So check this out. This is John chapter 3, a few verses later after John the Baptist is on the scene. This is verse 35 and verse 36. And look how this is connected to believe. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see what, what they did? They connected it right here. To those who believe have eternal life. Amen! But then it doesn't say whoever does not believe does not have eternal life. It says those who do not obey. And so this obedience of following is tied to the believing in the Son. And so saving faith that you believe into Jesus is simply this, that you recognize who he is first and foremost, that you believe that he died for your sins and that God rose him from the dead, conquering death and the consequence of our sins. And, and there's a desire in your heart to say, Lord, teach me your ways. Teach me the ways of the age to come, of eternal kingdom. Teach me what it means about finances. Teach me what it means about my sexuality. Teach me what it means about marriage, about singleness. Teach me what it means about generosity. Teach me what it means about telling the truth and being honest. Teach me those things so that I can conform my life to your ways. Lord, I want to do what you're calling me to do. That's how you know you believe. If you recognize who Jesus is, but you have no desire to do what he says, you don't believe him. You don't. It's as simple as that. Now, we're talking about carrying it out perfectly because as the biggest sinner in the room, I know that I don't. But the evidence is in the heart to say, I recognize who he is. And oh man, I want him to be the Lord of my life. I want to take my life and put it under the lordship of Jesus to say, teach me, shape me, conform me 
into the ways of everlasting life. If you teach me something about how I'm living and I'm not living it, it's my desire to change and to come after you. That's what it means to believe on Jesus Christ. There's anyone, whosoever believes, it's open to the whole world. Whoever recognizes Jesus says, Jesus, be the Lord of my life, lead me, conform me, would not perish. Part of understanding what God's love is, the gift of God's love, is to know what, what you're getting. What are you being rescued from? And you're being rescued from perishing. So you're an eternal being. You'll eternally live somewhere. And God sees the state of humanity and that we're all perishing. It means that we're all dying. And he says, okay, I don't want them to. I don't want them to perish. And so I'm going to send my son. God so loved the world that he sent his son that you wouldn't perish. Now, what is this idea about perishing? Well, it's tied also back here to John chapter 3, verse 36. Those who don't believe have the wrath of God still on them that causes things to perish. Now, that's where like a bunch of people in the room go, okay, now I'm out. Okay, when he prays, closes his eyes, I'm getting up and I'm leaving because I like the God of love. I don't get the God of wrath, of perishing. They can't be the same. They can't be together. And so don't even talk to me about the God who would let things perish or have his wrath on things. But let me tell you something, friends. It is his wrath that expresses his love for you. If he did not have wrath, he would not be loving. Now, let me explain that because that's probably a sideways idea for many people in the room. Think of it this way. God is our father. We are his offspring. The world is his offspring, made in the image of God. You look just like your daddy, and he loves you and wants all of his children to come home. But we, in our rebellious state, have evil in our hearts. We do evil things. We gossip, we betray, we aren't trustworthy, we do things we should not, we, we don't do things we should. And because God is perfect and holy, we can't be in his presence. But God wants you there. And so we've been infected with a terminal disease that's going to kill us. And, and what God's going to do when he makes all things new, he's going to say, okay, I'm done with this evil thing. I'm done with the way that we hurt each other, that we shame each other, that we divide ourselves. I'm done with that. I'm bringing a holy, living family back together. And I'm just going to put away evil. I'm going to perish evil. Well, I'm tied to that. Like the evil that, that's in the world comes from me. I hurt you. You hurt me. How does God not just let his people perish with the evil that's in their heart? Well, it's just like cancer. You go to a doctor and say, my number one priority is to kill the cancer in me. Okay, well, we can just kill everything. We can just perish the whole body, and there won't be any cancer alive. Yeah, but I'll be dead. I know. What does a loving doctor say? A loving doctor says, okay, here's what we're going to do. I have a remedy to separate what's killing you, what's causing you to perish, from who you are. So that we can put this to death and you might live. I'm going to separate you from what's causing you death so that you can have life. And God's answering that question for his children. See, there's something in you that's killing you. You've been bitten. There's sin and evil in you. And God says, I so love you. 
that I don't want you to perish. But I'm, I'm putting away all evil. I'm going to judge it all. And so I'm going to untie you from what's killing you. So that when I kill it, you'll live forever. That's it. That's it. And he gets angry with the evil that's in the world, that's in our hearts. And you see, that's the part that I, I struggle with. Like, how can he be loving then? Think again as a parent. Think as a parent with a child who is infected with cancer. Are you not a bit angry with cancer? Is there not some emotional response to say, I wish I could just tear it out of you? Or picture your child who comes home and says, I've been hurt. Someone's done evil to me. A loving parent would say, who? Who did that? And they're fired up. They want to go and reconcile things. They want to go make things right. An unloving parent would just say, oh, don't worry about it. Just leave it alone. No big deal. No, someone hurt me. Someone's done evil to me. A loving parent says, okay, let's go address that evil. Or imagine your child has made significant decisions in their life that have hurt their life, that have caused themselves a lot of pain. In fact, they're in behaviors or addictions that are killing them. And what do you, what do you, what's your response as a loving parent? Man, I just want to get in there and tear it out. Or how about the person who loves your spouse? I just want to, I'm just so mad at the alcoholism in your life. It's killing you. I want to just tear it out of your life. Look at the way that you're using prescription medications or illicit drugs. You can just see their, their body crashing and a loving parent gets fired up. An unloving parent says, ah, who cares? Let them go do what they want. Let them go do what they want. No skin off my back. But God's not that way. God, God's anger is not volitious. It's not ill-tempered. He doesn't fly off the handle. God says, my right and fitting response to the cancer in your life is to address it. But if you don't want me to address it, I'll leave you alone and I'll let you have it, but it's going to kill you because I am causing all evil to just perish. I'm going to put it all away. But in order that you don't go when I perish all of evil, I sent my son. I love you so much. When you didn't deserve it, I sent my son. That he would be the remedy for anyone who looks and believes in him that we'd be able to deal with the cancer in your life so that you might live forever. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe would not perish and have eternal life. God who gave us and did not spare his own son, will he not also give us all things? If he gave us the best, I mean, there's just more to follow. And so God has eternal life. So what speaks of eternal life is that it's unending. That God who has laid his affections on you and given, him, given you his son, for those who believe, have eternal life. You know what that means? That no matter what comes between today and the day that you stand before God and all the days afterwards, God has proclaimed, I will never, ever fall out of love with you. I'll never fall out of love with you. No matter what comes to the days that we have here on earth, and I know we make some hard decisions and we're the recipients of other people making hard decisions, I will never fall out of love with you. 
That's eternal life. It brings us in. So there's four things we learn about God's love in this passage. First, we learn that God's love is a sacrificial gift. God's love for you sacrificially was given. It cost God something. God's love draws near. It doesn't distance himself from the messiness. He draws near right into it. God's love draws out. He's willing to be honest with you. The things that are killing your life, your marriage, yourself, all the people around you, he's willing to be honest with you and draw you out of it. You might have eternal life. And God's love is unending. It's unending. So what's our response to it? Well, John goes on. This is John chapter 3, verse 17, speaking about how people respond to this incredible act of love. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of, of the only Son of God. Part of believing in God is that you live a condemned-free life. It's awesome. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I live a condemned-free life. It is awesome. There's no shame or guilt because Jesus Christ has dealt with it. That's the work of his love. And this is the judgment that light, this is Jesus, has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So that light comes in, and those who are afraid to say, okay, God's just out there to get me, and don't understand God's love for you, like hide in the corners. But perfect love casts out all fear. And so when the light shines into our light and exposes, we've just been exposed. We're not as good as we thought we were. God says, I'm right here, and I love you, and I want to save you. And those rush to Jesus, whosoever rushes into the light would be saved. Why would you not rush to the light? This is who God is. He is love. Arms wide open for you. Come here, child. Come here. I'll separate you from the thing that's killing you. You have no condemnation, no sin, no fear of death, eternal life. Come here. Only if we love our wicked deeds do we remain hidden in the corners, unwilling to come to Jesus. But that's God's love, his perfect gold standard love. And the only way that we know how to love as Christians is because he first loved us. It's the only way. And so we who are believing in Jesus want to conform our life, we want to conform our love to God's love. We want to love people like God loved us. And so here's just the question as you enter the Christmas season that I want to give you. You know, as the new year begins, there are people in your life that are hard to love. You could be sitting next to him. <laughs> or her. And we as disciples who follow the teacher need to ask ourselves, Lord, would you teach me how to love like you? This person who's so hard to love. So we ask ourselves, okay, who is it in my life that I'm unwilling to love because it costs me? Well, God, help me to love them like, it, like you loved me even though it cost you. Lord, how can I love them even though it's going to cost me to love them? I'm going to have to sacrificially give 
my love to them. And Lord, help me do that. I can't do that on my own strength. And then second, say, Lord, Lord, who have I distanced myself from because they're so unlovely? And, I, and Lord, help me draw near to them like you drew near to me. Help me to love them like you love me. Help me to come near to them. Who, who in my life do I need to be honest with, like real love, and be honest and help call them out of something? To help draw them out of some lifestyle. That's not, that's not life. And then who can I, Lord, Lord, show me the person that I just want to give up on. But Lord, help me love them like you have loved me. Help me not to simply just fall out of love with them. But help me love them like Christ loves me for all eternity, safe and secure. That nothing will separate me from God's love. Help me to love them like that. And so we want to take God's love that we've seen for us. Oh, it's good. It should draw you into the Father. In all the ways that we mess up, and we're honest about that, we just want to say, God, we want to love like you have loved. Conform our love to the way you have loved us. Hope you have the Holy Spirit, God, help you answer those questions this week. And perhaps we would be known and marked as a community of love. There are people look here at Calvary Bible Church and say, man, I don't know how they love like that. And we say, oh, it's just in response of how God first loved us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much that you first loved, that you took that first step, that you moved towards us, Father. We pray that we would love like you loved. Lord, I pray for every man and woman in the room that does not know you yet. May the kindness of God draw them into repentance. That they would know the freedom from all of their sin and their mistakes. And then to journey with you, Lord, as we take new steps of life forward with you. Lord, I pray for every person in the room who has that hard-to-love person in their mind. Lord, they can't love them on their own strength. And so, Lord, would you fill them with the sufficiency of your grace to love. May our community, may our church, may our families, may our homes be marked with Christ-centered love. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the one who came down, and the Spirit of God who gave us rebirth. May we be conformed into this image of love. Amen.